I met Michael for the first time, and I became an incumbent for the first time, many, many years ago, and he was the priest in charge of the parish next door. I'd heard about a lot of people. He had quite a reputation throughout the diocese because he'd been there only a year, and yet he had transformed the church. It was a, like a magnet to people of all ages, but particularly uh, young people, teenagers, those in their 20s and 30s, men as well as... And it wasn't people there, but there was a lot of life for bringing their, their friends to church. Now, um, what was so amazing was that the characteristics that you might have felt would go along with such a person and personality were not really there with Michael. He wasn't an extrovert. He wasn't um, you know, physically attractive. He wasn't sporty. He wasn't um, particularly clubbable or friendly with people. He seemed to have no close friends. There, were, there was no wife, um, no girlfriend, no boyfriend, um, no one close to him, it seemed. He was alone. He was very private. He was very quiet. But when he opened his mouth and he spoke, you knew that you were in the presence of God. He was very clever, first from Oxford and Cambridge. He, he was fluent in six European languages, as well as Hebrew, Greek and, and Latin and uh, and he knew his theology and he knew his Bible, but most of all, he knew his Lord. And when he spoke, people knew they were in the presence of God. And it had a dramatic effect upon their lives. Now, you might imagine that having a priest like that would um, cause a, a parish to be absolutely united in their belief that, goodness, God has blessed us. And most of the people in the church across the age range believe that. But there were those, and powerful people within the church, those who'd been in power in the church for a good long while, who felt very ill at ease at what was happening to their church. And they weren't initially <coughs> to and suggested that perhaps he might think of uh, moving on to another church, although he'd only been there a year. But Michael, who never lost his temper or appeared in any way um, upset, just smiled and carried on. Uh, they tried to get lots of other people to persuade him to go. Um, the bishop, um, his rector, others. But Michael stayed with well, There was no charge or allegation against him uh, morally or financially. Uh, those would have been out of the question. And Michael kept on preaching the word of God and seeing lives transformed. They then went to Michael himself, and they tried to bribe him to leave. They offered him money. They offered him a, a new car, which was ironic, seeing that he was blind in one eye and couldn't drive. And then, somehow, and we'll never understand how, they managed to persuade the bishop to allow Michael to go. And Michael left. And the effect was... Exactly what his opponents did not want. It completely divided the church. Uh, family against family. Father against son. Brother against brother. Uh, and it divided the church. 
The irony is, of course, that now there are, in fact, two extremely strong and vibrant churches in that place. But it divided the church. What happened to Michael? Well, he was picked up by one of the, the dailies, the Telegraph. He became one of their editors. He was brilliant in everything he did. Everything he touched, he was brilliant at. Um, and, uh, uh, but he was very quiet. He was a reflective person. He was a private person. And although she and I used to meet with him once a month, um, after that for a long while, after a while, he just slipped away. And nobody knew what had happened to Michael until one day news reached us that Michael had concluded all his affairs in this world, removed everything from his hard drive, every piece of paper from his house, everything, and had terminated his existence very quietly and privately. And together with another of his friends, I was asked to sort some things out and to sort out the service. And I remember that this was the person who was thought of as the person who divided the church. And then I remembered who Michael was and the incredible effect that he had upon people. We had a a couple with their three children staying with us this last week whose lives were utterly transformed by this man, brought to faith and glorious ministries. And so we felt that a postscript, as it were, another chapter had to be written about Michael so that people were reminded of who he was And at his service, we read that, we shared that, and it was hundreds were present, hundreds of lives who were transformed by this man. Now, why am I telling you this story? I'm telling you this story because the gospel reading we've just had, that Andrew read to us, as we know, chapter 21 of John's gospel, is in itself, itself, a postscript. John the Apostle has written his, his gospel, And those of you who know your Bible know the end of John's Gospel. It says Jesus performed many other miraculous signs in front of his disciples. uh, But these are written that you might believe and that believing you might have life. And that's the end of his Gospel. And then news reaches John, or the writer of John's Gospel. And the news that reaches them is that Peter... Peter's glorious ministry, who'd served Christ, Peter has died. His life has been crowned with martyrdom, the cross. I think traditionally they say he was crucified upside down because he didn't feel he was worthy of being crucified the same way as, as Jesus, his Lord. And John rereads his gospel, and as he reads it, what, does, what comes out is, of course, that, that Peter was the one who denied his Lord. I don't know him. I've, I've never met him. I'm, I'm not one of his disciples. Three times he denies Jesus. And that's how we're likely to remember Peter when we read John's Gospel up to chapter 20. And John thinks, no, something more needs to be said to remind people that the Peter who denied his Lord was also the Peter who was forgiven reinstated and commissioned to be the first pastor of the flock, to have the keys of the kingdom. And I guess, you know, if everybody knew everything about each one of us, 
Uh, I mean, which one of us has not said or done something in the past or thought something or had some outburst, which, if taken in isolation, would um, make us seem unfit and unworthy to serve the kingdom of God. But what does Jesus do in this chapter? He reinstates, establishes, strengthens, and commissions Peter. Now, I want this morning, fairly briefly, for us to have a look at this chapter, or some of this chapter, John chapter 21, which John begins to write. And it's, a, it's like, for me, a picture, a beautiful picture. And in it, there are, there are many views of it. You can look at it from very different points of view, and you can see different little sort of cameos going on in, in, in the picture. And I want us to have a look at some of these and see in what ways are we challenged or encouraged by them. And so John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who brings back to his memory the things that went on on that, that third appearance after the resurrection, John begins to write this chapter, John chapter 21. Um, the first view of the picture that you may look at, and you might say, is it's, it's the call of the old life. You know, preachers have a field day here because they say, look, this is what happens when people forget Jesus and they go their own way and into terrible trouble. Uh, and, um, and there they are. They're in Galilee and uh, there are the boats and uh, there are the nets and there's Tiberias or there's, there's the Lake of Galilee and the Lake of Galilee is exactly as they left it, exactly the same, except it wasn't exactly the same because before Jesus was there, And now Jesus isn't there. And they spent three years of their life with him. And they were young boys, young men. But there were the boats, there were the nets. And Peter says, I'm I'm going fishing. And the others with alacrity say, well, we'll come with you. And off they go. The call of the old life. I can remember when I first became a Christian that... uh, you used to say, well, if, you, if you're a really a Christian, you need to get ordained or you need to be a missionary or something like that. Uh, um, and I think sometimes we make, or could, can make, think of dividing the sacred and the secular, but it doesn't matter what you are or what you do. Each one of us, you know, who knows Christ, each of us has a commission, a calling, to know Christ and to make him known, no matter our age or our occupation or whatever. So... Maybe we shouldn't make too much. Um, and I also think it's hard on the disciples to brand them with this because they were there. Why? Because the angel had told them, you know, tell, tell the disciples to go to Galilee. Jesus will meet them there. So in obedience, they, they were there. Right, that's one way of looking at the picture. Um, the second little thing I'd like to look at, view if you like, is the conversation that took place between the disciples and the man on the seashore who they probably thought was a fish dealer. Boys, he says, you know, um, uh, have you caught any fish? And the answer comes back, no. Again, some of, the, uh, some of the preachers say, well, this, of course, is what happens, isn't it? When you're willful and disobedient and you go your own way, things go horribly wrong. And I suppose there is, there is probably some truth in that. But we don't know why they didn't catch any fish. I mean, perhaps it was that if they had caught loads of fish, they would have, um, 
They would have ignored the man by the seashore, um, and, and um, they would have ignored Jesus. They wouldn't have needed Jesus. And if things go brilliantly for us, and we know that sometimes things do go brilliantly for us, um, and, and we live in a place which is, you know, where people have almost everything they could possibly ask for or, or need, it's very easy when you've got everything really not to need Jesus. Sometimes you need things to go wrong before you actually turn and recognize your need. Uh, when I was uh, in my teens, probably 13, 14, something like that, um, and you're far, all of you are far too young to remember, but in those days, you could take a shilling to school and get a school dinner. And um, with my friends, uh, some of us would go down to the betting shop and we would persuade someone to take our two shillings in, a shilling each way on a certain horse. And um, anyway, I did this for a while and until my mother started to wonder why I was so ravenously hungry when I got home from school. And in a moment of weakness, I confessed what I had been doing. And I, um, I regretted it instantly. Um, and a few days later, I said to my mother, I said, you didn't, didn't tell dad, did you? My father was an authoritarian sort of figure. And, and uh, she said, yes. And horror filled my heart. And I said, what did he say? And she said, uh, well, he didn't mind as long as she lost. And I thought about that. And I gave up giving my money to the bookmaker. And sometimes you need things to go wrong in your life before you're actually prepared to turn and look to Christ. Right, let's just say something about that catch of fish. There are 153 fish there. Now, Andrew Barker, who's with us today, has actually preached eight sermons on the 153 fish. And uh, we won't hear them all now. No, sorry, nine. Nine apologies, yes. We won't hear them all nine. But it is fascinating, you know, the 153 fish. You know, um, uh, well, uh, first of all, was it a miracle? In your Bibles, I don't agree with it, there's a little heading that's been put in by someone else, a miraculous catch of fish. It doesn't have to be a miracle. It might have been a miracle, but it doesn't have to be a miracle. There is a natural explanation. I'm told, I read a book, also on Andrew Barker's bookshelf, entitled In the Steps of the Master by H.V. Morton. You're all nodding. Yes, you've all got it at home. And in that book, H.V. Morton says how he goes out there and uh, he sees these fishermen, he's standing on a higher place, or this, and he sees a man on a higher place, and someone's directing, left a bit, left a bit, right a bit, nets down there. Um, and I have swum at Capernaum when I was much, 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 much younger, and, uh, and I know that there are streams of water that come up, hot and cold, within the lake itself, and fish are drawn to these places. So it's highly probable, highly possible, that that was what was going on. Frankly, I'm not bothered whether it was a miracle or not. Let's just turn to the 153 fishes. Because, as I said, the church has had a field day trying to work out what these stand for. Uh, 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 what's his name? Cyril, that's it. Cyril Alexander, he says that it's, it's like this. A hundred is the number of the Gentiles. Fifty is the number of the remnant of Israel. And three is the number of Trinity. Gentiles, remnants of Israel, Trinity, everybody's there. Um, Augustine says, no, no, no. There's another explanation. He says, 10 is the number for the law, Ten Commandments. 7 is the number of grace. 
Mathematicians among you will have worked it out. 10 and 7 together. Yes, equals 17. Add up the numbers between 1 and 17. What do you come to? 153. Obviously. Grace and law together. Um, Jerome. I won't do the last one. Jerome. He says, how many different breeds of fish are there? 153. There you are. And all of these actually point to the same thing. They're all saying the same thing. You know, everything and everyone is now gathered to Christ. And the interesting thing about this catch of fish is those of you who know your Bibles, you'll know that there is another catch of fish. One catch of fish and the other catch of fish. Very simply, this time the nets did not break. Picture perhaps that the disciples are now coming to that point of being ready to go out and be fishers of people, of men. I can see you're all tired, so three little tiny things to add, three little viewpoints, if you like, three little cameos. One of John, one about Peter, one about Jesus. One about the recognition, one about the reaction, one about the reception. First of all, the recognition. Who was it who recognized that the fish dealer, the man at the side of the lake, was Jesus? It was John, the one whom Jesus loved, he says. And people who love each other look for each other and recognize each other. You know, sometimes I think we should pray more that God would allow us to love Jesus more. Because if we loved Jesus more, we would see Jesus. We would recognize him more in the events of our lives. We would have his peace and his joy and his love. Uh, uh, There's that uh, poem that everybody knows about some footprints, I don't know what it's called, footprints in the sand, the strange of the dream, or whatever. But the message of the story is that Jesus is there throughout. You know, we may not see him, but he is there supporting us. And if, O oh Lord, you gave us more love for you, then maybe we would see Jesus more. Maybe we should pray that for ourselves. Uh, right, the recognition, and, and now the reaction. Um, And John remembers that the person who reacted was Peter. It wasn't John put his coat on, leapt into the water. It was Peter who leapt into the water. He was the one who reacted. He was always the one who reacted. You know, you are the Christ. I won't let that happen. Um, You know, he, he, he was always the one who would react first. And the strange thing is, or maybe not so strange, that it is to the reactionary, it is to Peter, that Jesus gives this commission to be the first pastor of the flock. Why? Well, perhaps because, you know, those who react and those people who speak out, and it's costly to do so, very easy to keep quiet and never say the wrong thing. Very costly sometimes in terms of persecution, of suffering, martyrdom, perhaps, to speak out. And it is to Peter who reacts that Jesus entrusts the flock of God, the keys of the kingdom. Last, final, little glorious picture, snapshot if you like, is Jesus and the reception. There is the fire. 
charcoal fire, I won't go into that, no time. And there's the fire, and there's the fish, and there's the bread, and everything is ready. And Jesus says, come and have breakfast. And one day, one day, like my friend Michael, <clears throat> we'll take that final plunge, each of us, through the barrier of death, which Jesus defeated on the cross. And Jesus will be there. And everything will be ready. What a picture. What a hope we have in Christ. Hallelujah. Christ is risen. I'm going to stand and we're going to sing a version of the Creed. Hannah, over to you.